Hello everybody, I'm Graham Gardner, and you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 22, from the British Society of Dowsers. In this episode, we have an exclusive interview with Australian dowser Alana Moore, who I managed to catch up with for a few minutes during our busy 2010 conference, where she was running a workshop on permaculture and dowsing, a subject she is passionate about. So never let it be said that we don't bring you any international guests on this podcast. Now, I hadn't seen Alana for a few years, and it was great to catch up with her again. But before we get into my chat with Alana, let me just update you on a couple of news items. Well, our 2011 course programme has just been published on the main website, and so far we have over a dozen courses planned, including five of our popular foundation courses for complete beginners. The uh, events programmes for our special interest groups are still being finalised, but chances are that they will be updated probably by the time you listen to this podcast. Just uh, check out the main website at britishdowsers.org for full details of all our events for 2011. Now, if you're a reader of Kindred Spirit magazine, the December edition carries an excellent article and interview with Elizabeth Brown discussing her book, Dowsing the Ultimate Guide to the 21st Century, which I may have mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, It's an excellent read, and the book is available from the BSD shop, and of course, buying it from us will help support the society. If you have any dowsing-related news items of your own, uh, or have been involved in some significant dowsing work in your area, then we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us an email at podcast at britishdowsers.org. And now, without further ado, here's my chat with Alana Moore. So with me now is uh, Alana Moore. Uh, very nice Hi to then. see you, Alana. Uh, yep. It's been four years since you were uh, last here, I think? I think so, yes. I come every few years. What have you been up to <laughs> since we last saw you? Um, well, it's sort of, it's always the same in the last ten or so years, or more, twelve years now. I've been very intensively um, teaching in Australia, New Zealand, uh, last few years in Asia, and very receptive audience in, in Asia. I must say they're mostly Chinese people. But um, they, uh, they're brought up with the concept of, um, you know, a spiritual reality and um, I suppose the Buddhist um, perception of the world where everything is consciousness. So they, they um, really appreciate what I have come to tell them about um, dowsing and the, the, the living qualities and the consciousness in the nature. Uh, they love all that, and they love the dowsing because it's not a very—it's not really a tradition in Asia, the dowsing. In fact, they've even somebody reckons they've started a Malaysian dowsing society as a result of me going there. Whether it's real or whether it's just a website, I don't know. There is a website. Um, I've done a few courses. I've got a lot of enthusiastic students that I'm in touch with, and they're getting together and uh, doing their own practice and I'm giving them a few ideas from distance so that's very encouraging I love that to happen so I do focus a lot on the teaching and um, and they love the power towers so that that was a concept that was sort of generated in Ireland mm. by yeah, Professor tell us, Callahan. Tell us a bit about the power towers they're based yeah. on the Irish round towers huh? 
Yeah, well, that's what's got people really excited mm. with, with the dowsing workshops. It's, that tends to be the, the favourite subject. Um, it's because they're, well, they're enigmatic structures in Ireland. They're big, um, big round towers that are like 100 feet high, or that's the highest ones. They're about 1,000 years old. They're pretty well made. Um, except the lightning has toppled quite a few of them. Are they always so attached to uh, chotries? They are always found to the left or right of the back door of the church, I think. So they're always in relationship to the ecclesiastical building layout. Um, unfortunately, Professor Callahan was a bit misguided in when he told us that he believed them to be pre-Christian. But you only have to study the um, architecture of them and you'll see the Romanesque style, etc., etc., which dates mm -hmm. them very clearly to the 11th century or, you know, around there. So he was a little bit uh, misguided by the reference books that he was looking at, but there's been more um, informative works written about them. But it doesn't really matter about the shortcomings of his observations. Uh, basically, during World War II, he was stationed in uh, the north of Ireland as a radio engineer expert. And in his uh, off days, he'd wander around and he caught sight of this magnificent um, tower, which is in a perfect condition in Devonish, which is probably the finest tower in the north of Ireland. And he thought, mmm, very good antenna shape. And uh, because he was a radio man, so he, you know, he. He was a keen observer of antennas. He noticed that, um, for instance, later in his career, that insects' antennas, when they're greatly magnified, are very like a lot of uh, sacred structures that people have built in the past, like the church spires or the uh, Buddhist stupas, domes. Various structures are um, there in the animal world, in, in insects. So he's made all these observations and... Um, um, and some very interesting ones. But what he found about the Irish towers were that they were acting as antennas and they were actually collecting magnetic monopoles that were floating around in the atmosphere, generated from the sun, ultimately, but also bouncing off the moon, and that they acted as a waveguide and that um, the area around the towers was the magnetic field was basically more intensified around those towers. And he guessed that that meant that they were growing big cabbages and things in the um, gardens which were feeding the monks, because at that time the uh, monasteries were the main sort of centres, I suppose, of business and everything, hmm. and administration, so they had to have food for them. But actually, when you look at it, the Grange, which was the name for the... Um, the farm that was associated with them was, wasn't right next to the church, it was down the road usually. So um, so I don't always agree with what he's written in the books, but still, he, he was the man who suggested that the force of paramagnetism, which is a weak attraction to the magnet, that that would have uh, um, interesting effects in nature, and he noticed that it is a natural stimulus for plant fertility, enhanced plant growth. Um, and it naturally comes in volcanic areas where the rock has this paramagnetic quality. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I myself have been very attracted to volcanic areas and have often lived in them and 
the house I have in Australia, I have a special window I made when I was building the house that you can look out and see a perfect scoria cone volcano. But of course, it's an ex not actually an extinct volcano, a sleeping volcano, because mm. it only uh, was last, well, it formed only 7,000 years ago. It's a very young volcano. So I live on the edge, in, when I'm in Australia, on the edge of the third lava, largest lava plain in the world. And there is a lot of high energy around, and Melbourne, which is not far away, is on the edge of that plain. And Melbourne is known as a very dynamic place. There's a lot of creative people. It's um, fun, it's groovy, it's, um, it's a high-energy place. Whereas uh, when you look at, say, the opposite end of the country in Perth, um, that's on sandy soil, and um, it's a pretty low-energy place. There's no, nobody would go there, would call it dynamic or anything. Mm -hmm. It's a good place to have a restful holiday sort of thing. So Callaghan made, um, made us aware when he came out to Australia and, and went to the workshop in '93 made us aware of the effect of geology on people and so I sort of factored that into my geomancy work and um, started experimenting of course making the towers and I just ran with it because um, you know I needed someone who was a dowser to look into the energies to to use that knowledge effectively. So did Callahan do any work on the, I know you, you build smaller towers that are about what, 10 feet? Well he about? suggested that uh, people make the smaller towers. We didn't do one in the workshop, mm. he was just talking about it. He didn't personally make them, but it was just from his impetus that other people have made them. But other people have taken his ideas and changed them a little bit, and I have seen towers in Australia that um, didn't have that very attractive sort of energy that you would want from a tower. In fact, they had a kind of repulsive energy, mm -hmm. and they'd been put on the wrong energy spot because people were misinterpreting what he was saying, and they were and that particular occasion, it took me a few years to track down some, uh, somebody who could explain why these huge um, pink granite towers that I'd seen, they were you know, a couple of feet across and maybe four metres high, tons of rock in them on these farms, so they weren't getting a good result. And uh, someone said, oh, well, we had some Americans down and they suggested that um, we'd had to change all the indications upside down because we were on the southern hemisphere right. so instead of putting them on a downward vortex which is one of the criteria they're putting them on an upward vortex which mm -hmm. was just really messing it all up and yeah. so they had pretty awful energy but a, a well-placed tower will give some very interesting effects and it will feel good to be around it and animals feel good so you know they're a good indication if you see, and often people put them up in Australia and they find that kangaroos come out and then sleep around them or just hang around them or various mm. animals um, absorbing that energy which they instinctively feel. Um, and of course it's mainly for the plant growth, the effect, the stimulating effect on the plant growth. I got some nice feedback the other day from someone um, because it is hard to get feedback. People tend to go off and do their thing but they don't tend to write it up, whereas I'm a writer, so I love writing it up, and I love sharing information, and, and you know, when I gain information, as Callahan told me, I feel like I have a responsibility to share it, because it's like wonderful, and it's going to make the world a better place. So um, I had communicated with the next student for some other reason, and he said, oh, well, we're happy with our towers, and I will come on, give us some more information. So he said, okay, well, we put the little tower up after the workshop, 
in the hothouse, I think, and all the tomatoes, it was the end of summer and the tomatoes were finishing to produce tomatoes and they were kind of dying off a bit. But when the tower went in, uh, they started producing new flowers and new fruit and grew bigger and, and stood more upright and the fruit tasted so much more delicious than the previous fruit mm. that they were totally gobsmacked because mm. you would not expect that when the plant had finished producing. And there was a few other things that, that uh, blew them away. So, uh, so there are hundreds of people that I, or thousands that I've taught over intensively since 1998, uh, when my son left home and I was freed up. And um, you know, a lot of people then have been building them and teaching us, showing other people, and doing it. And I encourage people to get together because we create uh, this beneficial and enhancing energy field when we put these paramagnetic antennas or whatever you want to call them up but really it's dependent on how uh, what the intentions that we have when we're doing it and I noticed that um, in the early days of me teaching it I'd, I'd insist that everybody would have to join in the ceremony to bless the tower or program the tower and I was often sort of out in the sticks with farmers on giant wheat farms you know 50,000 hectare farm or whatever and there was pretty hard-nosed guys, and some of them were a bit sceptical that, at that point. And the energy of those towers didn't feel so good. Mm. So now I know, you know, this is, this is an optional exercise. If you feel like joining in the ceremony, I suggest to people, you know, you learn as you go. So if anyone's sceptical, you do not want that energy of their scepticism in that energy field. I know now that uh, you know it is really the int and from long experience now that it's that's the most important part of the whole process of making them is when we gather close around the tower and we're verbalizing our intentions whether it's big tomatoes or happier people or attracting customers to a business or anything that it's all about us coming together at that one moment in time for this little mini ritual to harness the positive energy of those people that are present, ideally at the full moon, it's a good time to do it. And um, when that happens, the energy of the tower just shoots out in all directions and is so much more powerful that it, the, um, the energy of it goes up two, three, four times at that point. And, uh, and that can be then reinforced at subsequent full moon times with you know a group of people party or whatever uh, so I suggest to people to get people together so it, you could say there's a little bit of social gluing happening as well so they're more versatile they're not just for the uh, the agriculture you can use them for other applications well not just the <laughs> gardens because yeah. they do make you feel good so you know if you had a business that you wanted to attract more customers you could have them in a little garden mm. outside and and that would be the programming that you would put into them and uh, lots of other in interesting applications. Have you come across uh, field emitters? <laughs> field broadcasters, yeah, like yeah. cosmic pipe or something. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I know people do it, like Hugh Lovell is American who mm. does that, and he's actually moved to Australia now. Mm. There's a few Americans, they tend to visit a lot in Australia because they find the people very receptive to those sort of ideas, whereas in America they're not so receptive, Sure. Yeah. even though the population is a lot bigger. Um, but personally, I haven't used them, and I think I've always felt that simple is beautiful. 
and the simplicity of the power tower where all you're making is a column of paramagnetic rock in whatever container is suitable, normally a stormwater pipe, a plastic mm. pipe, which sounds pretty awful and crass and ugly, but you can paint it and decorate it or stud it in rocks or something. But some people took the ideas and added metal and put copper lids on, whereas really I think metal is a bit of a no-no mm. because that's ferromagnetic. The paramagnetic is a very weak attraction to a magnet, so it's a gentle stimulus, but it can have quite strong effects hmm. and people find that they're energized when they're out in the garden or whatever they're doing they become more energized so there's been all sorts of quite amazing effects from doing that and I think even if you didn't have a power tower and you got people together thinking the same thing harnessing their positive thoughts in a sort of ceremony um, you can't go wrong because it can have amazing effects and so people are feeling good doing it, and um, it's ever popular. Mm. Yeah, I know you do a lot of um, ceremony uh, just on the land and working with the elementals mm. and the divas and stuff. In fact, I missed uh, the last time I saw you in Glasgow. Oh, I just missed that day. Oh, I did. Didn't come along. Didn't, couldn't come along to that. So yeah. uh, tell us a bit about that. Working with the divas. Yeah. Okay, so long ago I read about the um, finned horn, the big mm. cabbages, the, um, the people working with the davas. It was in a bit of a Christian sort of a context um, and it was like, oh that's a lovely story and yeah you have to be like them to do it or something. It didn't feel like I could do it um, but certainly it was inspiring and I think a lot of people were inspired but um, didn't do, didn't take it anywhere, having been inspired. And of course, I didn't go to Findhorn. I suppose people were interested. They went there, and it's big now. But the focus on the Davis is not there, really. Yeah, it may yeah. be underlying, but I don't think so. Um, however, you know, I was open to all that, and I've had a lot of interesting psychic experiences since I was a child. So, you know, I was totally open to the spirit world, but just never found a sort of a use or a need or a sort of practical. I'm a pretty practical person, you know. I've always been involved with gardening, environmental protection, working for Greenpeace long ago, or working for various environmental organisations to care for the environment, because I feel great love for the environment. And um, I suppose it was in it was about 2000 where I, I connected with a very old friend from uh, London. I used to live in London in the 70s. And he used to go out and meditate at the sacred sites, and he was very clairvoyant, and he always had been. And then I reconnected with him in Australia, because he was from Australia, funnily enough, but he was married to an English woman. And we, we were hanging out together, and um, he would describe these incredible landscape spirits that he saw, and he became fascinated by the Aboriginal people's perception mm -hmm. of these spirits. And, uh, and of course I did too, so I was, um, I was traveling around and with him, doing the workshops, a lot of traveling, meeting people, going to interesting sacred sites in, on the way. And he would start describing these beings that he saw. He never kind of talked to them or anything. He was just happy to observe them because, yeah, they've got their world, we've got ours. But uh, I was became totally fascinated because then I found that I could douse what he could see, I could douse for. Once he pointed out where it was and I did my distant dousing, I realized that yes, I could detect an energy field. 
and so I, my confidence built up doing that until I could find one and then I'd say well hey come and have a look at this you know and you go oh wow that's a good one so I got the confidence with the David Dowson as I call it and uh, you know whatever technique people use it's just a matter of attuning your mind to an energy field whose characteristics are consciousness Char it has character it may have a sort of gender it might be seem like a male or a female but it's not really important but and of course some people talk to them and they find they get messages or whatever but um, it's been a very exciting exploration ever since so I started teaching people how to find them in 2003 and um, at first I was a bit shy about even mentioning it because people mm. might just laugh and say you know that's ridiculous or whatever but soon I found that actually if I asked a lot of hands would go up and because other people were interested too so that helped me to sort of be upfront about it and it's like yes it's not for everybody if people don't want to know about that aspect of nature fine no problem but uh, if you do want to have a deeper connection to nature and landscape I think it's it's a very interesting area to look at because when I'm looking at the geomancy of a place as a professional earth energy dowser uh, now I factor that aspect in often that comes across in a place as the most important aspect because those davers will come out of the woodwork because they've they've learned to recognize me and I'm sure I have other ones in fact I know I have one I was told by Swedish clairvoyant when I was there with a big into the nature spirit dowsing and I picked up a lot when I went to spent a week with the Swedish dowsers a few years ago and um, so I have I have a little nature spirit follows me around and if I want to meet with the biggest nature spirit in the area I send Glador out I was told his name too and I say Glador tell so and so they would really like to meet them at two o'clock at the park bench down there and, and so I make appointments with them if I need to if I have some reason and after Sweden I did because they gave me a couple of special energy balls that they had created and I've still got them a bit faded now and I hold them in my aura and they were designed to help the Davis because they're struggling in the technological environment that humans have created. It's very hard for them because normally they're out there caring for the environment. They're also gardeners and, and lovers of plants, and, you know, the more evolved ones that, that um, are responsible for different areas. So they're very concerned about what's happening and they don't know what to do. They actually need people to help give them a bit of guidance. So I started duplicating these energy balls. They were one of the programs that went into the energy balls was they could be infinitely duplicated. So the Davis could also duplicate them. And it was very interesting. When I did it to the main landscape Deva, where I live in Australia, I have on my little farm, 15 acres, my house is facing the top of the hill where there's a magnificent rock outcrop, which is actually an Aboriginal women's sacred site and the colours and the rocks are very beautiful and it's very magical but I've learned the hard way that men are not allowed there because they have a very hard time around it. It's definitely women's country and uh, I have to tell men not to go near them. And uh, so the main landscape, David there, she was a very sort of quiet sluggish one when I met her originally um, and not so big. But um, after giving her the energy ball she really went up a notch or several notches 
and uh, these days she's towering, she's huge, and her colours have changed, she has gold, and she's become a more important deva, she's more activated. And I'm sure that energy ball had something to do with it, me giving her energy and, and honouring her presence. Yeah. And so, um, interesting evolution of that place, so now I have to move out of that place, now that I'm married to Peter, I don't want Peter to struggle in that energy atmosphere because I've seen men go downhill because I go away a lot and I leave these, I've left some men there as caretakers and they were all like a little bit crazy when I came back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I had to say, Peter, we're going to have to move out because we've got another place mm. and I'm actually going to turn it into a, a place where we can run workshops but uh, try and focus on women's consciousness raising workshops uh, because that is the, you could say that's the highest possible outcome or purpose of that site, that sacred site. So I would be truly honouring that place by having the uh, women's moon lodges, I call them, at that site because I think, you know, a piece of land is, as the Vietnamese say, is like a piece of gold. It's a very precious thing, but it's only what you do with it. And I think with this economic crash, that's good because to take away this artificial notion of the value of land the cost, the price of land, it's really, it truly, it should be, you know, what you do with it that's, that has value. Mm. So I like to use a place and a landscape for its highest possible potential. And that's what you do in good permaculture design. As a permaculture teacher, I've been tr also trying to infiltrate the permaculture movement with dousing. So I'm always telling them, yes, you can use dousing in the garden, you can um, find a good place to grow or where not to grow because you don't want to upset the fairies. And then since I've been going to Ireland enough, there is another appreciative audience, albeit a small one, for those ideas because the idea of keeping the fairies happy is still alive and well in Ireland. Yep, indeed it is. Even with the Celtic tiger trampling over the landscape, and, and that's a good thing now, they're not doing these awful developments because there's no money, so that's good. And um, I still think there's a great need for education about the reality, the spiritual reality of the landscape and um, caring for it. And the Irish have done it very well because they have preserved more sacred sites than probably the whole of Europe. Mm. You can see just about every hilltop has an old rath or hill fort, otherwise known as hill fort, but not a fort, just a um, farm, you know, and so many, so many more things have survived there because they said, ah, you can't touch that, it's the home of the fairies. Yeah, um, there's that classic story about the house being built over the fairy path. The fairy pathway, and cut yes. the corner off it. Yes, yeah. that's right, there are yeah. a lot of stories about that, so most people are, are yeah. well up for it, and there used to be specialists in communities who would talk to the fairies, and if you mm. weren't sure, you would go to that person, and they would find out whether it was safe. Otherwise, you would place, traditionally, you would place four piles of stones where you wanted to put the house, or sticks, and if they were knocked over in the next couple of days, then you wouldn't build there. Mm -hmm. So they had mm. ways of finding out. Now, sadly, we were interrupted there, so we had to cut the interview short, but uh, I'm sure we could easily have chatted for another half hour at least. Uh, we'll just have to catch up with Alana next time she's over in the UK. If you want to find out more about her work, her website is called geomantica.com, that's G-E-O-M-A-N-T-I-C-A.com, and you can find out more about her work there. Uh, I'll post a link to this on our show notes page, of course. 
I'm afraid that's all we have for you today. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, England. For more details about the society and to learn how we can help you get more out of your dowsing, please see our website at britishdowsers.org. Don't forget you can get in touch by sending an email to podcast at britishdowsers.org. Have you made your own power tower? We'd love to hear from you. You can post messages on our forum, and don't forget you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for British Society of Dowsers. Thanks as always to Hilary Brooks and Ian Pedler for the music, and be sure to join me next time for more adventures in dowsing.